Good afternoon. This is Quintus Curtius, and this will be the first of an anticipated maybe nine or ten podcasts for the purpose of uh, delivering lectures on uh, Cicero's Stoic paradoxes. I've gotten a lot of questions on Stoicism, and I thought it would be useful to convey the information of Stoic paradoxes and to talk about Stoicism in general in the format of a lecture series. And this podcast is intended to be the first of a series of of 10, which will be using the material that appears in my book, uh, Stoic Paradoxes by Cicero, which was uh, released in September. Now, you don't need to have the book in order to follow follow along with these lectures, but it helps. Uh, what I will be doing is going through the subjects and the the doctrines and the narratives and and just giving them uh, a guide and um, you know, um, explanatory lectures on the doctrines and the material. I'd like to thank my uh, Return of Kings editor Winston Smith for encouraging me to do this do this podcast. Uh, I was initially a little bit hesitant to do it, but you know, prompted by a lot of the questions I've gotten from readers and just by his uh, suggestions, I figured it was something that uh, that readers would be interested in and it would help spread some understanding of Stoicism in general and Cicero's view of Stoicism in particular. So I'd also ask listeners to um, to uh, be patient here. This is uh, This is the first this is the first podcast that I've done, and there's going to be a little bit of a technical learning curve here, and I hope that uh, if you do hear problems with audio or any other transmission problem, you'll let, you, let me know in the comments, and I can take steps to try to correct that in future lectures. So let's begin now with, with uh, Stoic Paradoxes. Of the four major ancient schools of philosophy, Epicureans, Stoics, Platonists, and Peripatetics, uh, it's clear that that only Stoicism out of all of these has had a continuing practical, ethical impact. The others are genuflected to and are given their appropriate measure of respect, but it seems that Stoicism really enjoys the most interest today of all of the ancient schools of philosophy. And I think it's pretty clear why that's so. It offers a practical ethical guide to solving life's most important problems. And it at least had the sincerity of trying to confront those problems and grapple with them rather than trying to avoid them or bury them amidst a pile of uh, metaphysical baggage. Now, Cicero is not, strictly speaking, classified as a Stoic philosopher. He considered himself a follower of the new a follower of the so-called new academy, which is something that we'll talk about in the lectures ahead. But he was what I would call a stealth Stoic. He didn't, as an attorney and as an advocate, he disliked being specifically pegged with labels. But it's clear that as he got older and he was buffeted by life's storms and tempests, he became more and more aware of Stoicism's virtues and its strengths as a way of dealing with the 
uh, injustices and cruelties of life. So for our purposes, we can call him a Stoic. He was an educated Roman, fluent in Greek, who had studied philosophy as a youth in Greece, and he was singularly well-placed to write on these subjects. And it's important to understand that really before him, the Romans were not naturally a philosophically inclined people. Philosophers were looked upon with a little bit of suspicion and derision by the practically-minded Romans. They considered philosophy more of a Greek affectation and a sign of somewhat limited use uh, or, or something of, of limited usefulness to their practically-minded social organization. But this would change as the decades and the generations went forward. Stoic paradox is, is important. It's very important, I think, because it's the closest thing that we really have to a practical handbook of Stoicism. And I think for anyone who's interested in understanding these doctrines and getting exposure to them, there's no better place to start than this, than this, um, this treatise of Cicero. So what we'll do first is talk a little bit about the life of Cicero. Before we get into the actual doctrines, I think it's important to put into context the life of the author, why he's important, and what specific trials and challenges he faced in his life. Because we can't understand the thoughts of a man until we understand his life. Luckily, Cicero is one of the men of the ancient world whom we know the most about. He carried a statue of himself everywhere he went. He wrote himself, he wrote about himself constantly. Most of his letters are preserved, which were written to his friend and confidant, a man named Atticus. And these were probably never intended for publication, and they do contain a great deal of information that's revealing about his thoughts, his personality, and his aspirations. And like any man, he was a man of contradictions. He could be hypocritical, arrogant, boorish, and egotistical. But at the same time, he could be hardworking, conscientious, honest, and extremely diligent. In many ways, I see him as a tragic figure. I think that's the best way to view Cicero and his place in history. He's a tragic figure. He was undoubtedly a man of genius, but who was overwhelmed by the political realities of his time. And he was not really able to see the forest for the trees. He was really not capable of understanding what was going on in his world and putting that in historical context. So, despite his limited political vision, he remains probably the most influential of all his peers. He almost single-handedly reshaped the Latin language to make it a vehicle for the transmission of, of subtle philosophical thought. And he was very influential politically. He was the top dog for some years in Rome, and he enjoyed all the benefits that went with that. So let's talk a little bit about his life. He was born in 106 BC near the small town of Arpinum, which is modern Arpino, at a point roughly midway between Rome and Naples. 
It's actually about 70 miles east of Rome. And he came from an, an equestrian family. And that was one of the social categories of ancient Roman society. Um, equitus is what the Latin word was. And that stood for knights. And that was the family from which Cicero came from. So he wasn't really a patrician, but he was close to that. He was maybe what we could say upper middle class. And his father was able to give him the best education that he could afford. He was tutored in Greek and then studied rhetoric and law with Quintus Mucius Scaevola, who was one of the most influential legal and jurist figures of the day. And he served, uh, he served for a brief period of time in the army around the age of 17. And it was pretty clear to those who observed him that this was someone who had an extreme facility for language. This was someone who could compose and deliver speeches like no one else could. But on the darker side of things, it was clear that Cicero also had a weakness which would eventually contribute to his downfall. He was unable to keep his mouth shut in the face of despotic oppression and uh, uh, in the face of injustice and crimes committed by men far more ruthless than he was because he was living in perilous times this was a period of transition this was a period when rome was transitioning from the old republic to what would come to be called the roman empire and one of the first encounters that cicero had with one of these violent and ruthless men was Sulla, who seized power in Rome in the year 88 BC in what would today be called a coup. And Sulla defeated his rivals. Simna was the major one and prescribed, that is, put on execution lists, vast numbers of his of Simna's supporters, both real and imaginary. And these events left a strong impression on Cicero. These were events that uh, left an indelible impression his, in his mind. He was confirmed as someone who would be a defender of Republican virtues, that is, the rule of law and of the courts. So Cicero found himself on the receiving end or on the wrong side of, of uh, authority, which would not be the last time in his life, in, in, in the year 80 BC, where he undertook to defend a man named Roscius, who was a crony of Sulla. And um, Cicero defended him very well and then went on the offensive against Sulla's apparatus of repression by denouncing the prescriptions. And obviously dictators don't like to be denounced and Cicero found it expedient to leave Rome for a period of time. He used that time, which was about three years, to study philosophy and rhetoric in Greece and Asia Minor. This was a very productive period for him. He attended the lectures on rhetoric of Apollonius Mullen on the island of Rhodes, and he also attended the lectures of Posidonius on Stoicism. And both of these men were important philosophers and rhetoricians of their day. When Cicero finally returned back to Rome from his sojourn in Greece, he was about the age of 30, and he married his wife, Terentia, who was likely of patrician stock and provided him with the financial benefits and connections that he needed in order to enter politics because 
as we will see, this was Cicero's ultimate goal, was to enter politics. And so he found his marriage to be useful in that regard. And it was an advantage to him for, for a number of years. Now, Cicero next appears on the radar screen as the prosecutor of a man named, in Latin we would say, Verres, or in English, Verres, V-E-R-R-E-S was his name. And this was a political figure in Sicily who had uh, enriched himself with, with bribes and plundered the region that he had been appointed to administer. And the local business classes eventually tired of it and brought in Cicero to prosecute him. In those days, there was really no public prosecution system like we have now. If you wanted to bring an action of prosecution against someone, you had to actually hire someone uh, in the same way that we today uh, we do for, for civil cases. Uh, in, in today's world, we have criminal and civil cases, but in, 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 those, in those days, there was not really a distinction between civil and criminal. You had to privately undertake act, both of those actions yourself if you wanted to seek redress for a wrong. Now, Cicero's prosecution against Verres was so successful that uh, Verres' attorney, Hortensius, was, uh, was forced to concede defeat right after Cicero's opening statement. So he was very successful in this prosecution. And, and the, 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 uh, the Verian speeches are very effective. If we read them, it, it, it's, um, it's very clear that Cicero was a man of incredible linguistic ability and capability of employing invective to the goals that he wanted to apply them to. Next came in Cicero's political career, the most important event probably of his career, which he would take the most pride in as the years went forward, which was his exposure and destruction of the Catilinian conspiracy. Now, Catiline was a Roman patrician who we only really know through his enemies. We know through Cicero's speeches, and we know through the history, the the the, um, the historian Sallust, who wrote a monograph about the Catilinian conspiracy, and 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 both of those sources are uh, extremely negative about Catiline, obviously. But it's 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 likely that he was a disgruntled patrician who who, like many men of his era thought that he could do better in the reins of power and sought to seize control of Rome. He had apparently enlisted a great number of young men to his cause, and he seems to have had a, a populist platform. He promised to cancel debts and to do a lot of other great things, and he had seduced a great number of people to his cause. And supposedly, he was going to assassinate some top political figures and install himself in power. And Cicero exposed this conspiracy in the years 64-65 uh, and achieved great fame in doing so. His four speeches in Catalina against Catiline are masterpieces, again, of invective and rhetorical ability. And Cicero showed some personal courage in the prosecution of this, in, in, in the prosecution of this, um, of this, uh, this attempt to thwart the Catalinian conspiracy, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. But like anything, he tended to um, 
perhaps we are wear out his welcome and his goodwill. He constantly reminded the Romans of what he had done for them, and after a while, it got a little bit irritating with them. So this was probably the pinnacle of his political career. And at this point began the period of civil war, which would eventually result in the, the destruction of the old republic and the inevitable rise of Julius Caesar. So to make a long story short, the turbulence and the disorder of that era had really resulted in two men competing for the control of the Roman state. That was uh, Caesar, Julius Caesar, and Pompey. And in this duel, which open warfare broke out between the two of them in, in 49 BC, Caesar was the one who ended up being victorious. Pompey died in 48 after the Battle of Pharsalia, and Caesar sealed his victory as the sole top dog in the Republic, and essentially from that point onward ruled as a benevolent dictator. Now, Cicero did not support Caesar. In fact, he was deeply suspicious of him. He was against him. He thought that he was a usurper, that he was anti-Republican, that he was a danger to the Republic, and he wanted to make himself a permanent autocrat. And he may have been right in this, but what Cicero did not understand was that the old Republic was already doomed. It was already dead. It had been superseded by events. It had been um, rendered ineffective by the greed and the corruption of the ruling classes that existed at the time. And Cicero really could never see this. This was, again, a lack, an example of his lack of political vision. But he did find time to, he did find a way to make use of his time in these years. Even though he was out of power after Caesar took power, uh, Cicero retired his country estates and literally wrote almost a library of philosophy in, 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 within the span of a couple years, roughly from 46 to 44 BC. And Stoic Paradoxes was likely composed during that time. And this is really where we see Cicero as a, as a brilliant man of letters. His political career has long since faded away, but we remember him now as a man of letters, as a philosopher, as a rhetorician, and as someone who was a master employer of language to get his points across. Now, from this point onward, Cicero's downfall began. From 44 to 43 BC, he delivered a series of brilliant speeches against Mark Antony, who had become a prominent figure after the assassination of Julius Caesar. And this is really what sealed Cicero's fate. After Caesar was assassinated, and Cicero played no part in the assassination. He was not a member of the conspiracy, but unfortunately he endorsed it, and he approved it, and this was not something that Caesar's uh, successors Antony and Octavian ever forgot. And so when it came time for a settling of accounts, uh, Cicero's life was hanging in the balance. So really, uh, one gets the sense that after 44 BC that uh, Cicero just threw all caution to the wind and attacked Mark Antony in a series of speeches which are called the Philippics, which was named in honor of his hero, the Greek orator Demosthenes, who delivered a series of speeches by the same name against uh, Philip of Macedon. 
So this really is what sealed his fate because Mark Antony was a vindictive and autocratic figure and he never forgot what Cicero had, had said about him or said against him. And when Antony took power, Cicero became a marked man. And he played out this last period of his life by shuttling back and forth between his country estates, trying to avoid teams of assassins who were sent after him. And they finally caught up with him on December 7th in 43 BC, when a party of soldiers apprehended him as he was about to escape, as he was about to escape uh, by sea to Macedonia. He was being carried in a litter, and it's said that one of his slaves betrayed his identity to the assassins. Now, I think really this is where Cicero shows his, uh, you know, his character, which I think was was very strong. At the end, he accepted his fate stoically, and he uh, offered his neck to the executioners. He's, his last words were, he says, what you are doing is not right, soldier, but do try to dispatch me correctly. Then Cicero was decapitated, and his hands were cut off, and those trophies were put on display in the rostra of the forum. And so it was a very tragic end to a man of great ability and of, uh, and frankly, of, of great moral virtue, I think. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's a very tragic fate. He was someone who was undone by his weaknesses, like, like many men are, and he tried to hold on too tightly to his political beliefs. He could see nothing but um, chaos resulting from the dismantling of Republican institutions that his opponents sought. But despite all this, as I've said, his, his political career is probably the least important part of his legacy to the world. What, where his legacy really lies is his legacy as a man of letters and as a writer. And Stoic paradoxes belong to that group of writings of his that really helped popularize Stoicism in the Western world. So I'll close here with a quote from Plutarch, who finishes his own monograph, his life of Cicero, with this anecdote, which sums up, uh, I think, Cicero's legacy as well as anyone could. And this is a story where uh, Caesar was writing to one of his daughter's sons, and the boy uh, had a book of Cicero's in his hands. And uh, terrified of his grandfather, Caesar, he tried to hide it under his cloak. Uh, Julius Caesar noticed this, and after taking the book from him, he stood there and read a great part of it. He then handed it back to the young man with these words. He said, a learned man, my child, a learned man and a lover of his country. So he was respected. He was respected. He was acknowledged as a master of his trade and as a man of, uh, of deep moral convictions. That concludes our first lecture in our series of lectures on Stoic Paradoxes. I'm Quintus Curtius, and join me next time as we talk about the tenets and principles of Stoicism as they were understood by Cicero. Thank you. Good night.